0: Hey everybody, it is time for the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly, and today on our show...
1: Nothing wakes you up so much as as a punch in the face.
0: Or puts you to sleep, depending on how hard it is. Or puts
1: you to sleep, yeah. It's this weird, uh, fine line you walk.
0: The writer Jonathan Gottschall walked that line for a couple of years when he decided uh, on a lark to become a mixed martial artist in his late 30s. His career as a college English instructor was on the rocks... He was desperate to do something different and thought that cage fighting, well, that would be novel. In fact, he thought it might just be a perfect subject for his next book. It sounds like a stunt, and it kind of was, but it turned into something uh, much more serious, an obsessive quest to understand male violence and the relationship of violence to his own masculinity. And yes, it did result in a book which came out earlier this year entitled The Professor in the Cage, Why Men Fight and Why We Like to Watch. Well, I had spoken uh, to Jonathan a couple of years ago about another book he wrote, The Storytelling Animal, How Stories Make Us Human. And I knew he himself was a good storyteller. So uh, I got in touch with him this past week to talk about the new book and his life as an amateur MMA fighter, which, by the way, he says he's uh, retiring from in the interest of preserving some brain cells.
1: I must have been punched in the face. And when you're punched in the face, you're essentially punched in the brain. You know, really, honestly, without exaggeration, thousands of times. And so now, every time I have some sort of small memory lapse, you know, when I can't find my keys or whatever, I, I, uh, I do worry. You know, it's probably just being paranoid, but you never know. You know, brain damage um, from from sports, from combat sports like football or boxing or MMA, is usually a, a, a time bomb. It's going to go off at some point in your future. And you're not really sure when or if that will happen.
0: Well, your one or so years of, like, immersion in MMA, that's that's a pretty short time. No, so, I, did,
1: I did about three years. Oh, three years? Yeah, I, I had my fight after about one year. But then I, you know, much to my surprise, I really ended up enjoying my time in the cage. You know, I went into this project saying, you know, I'm really interested in violence. I really want to understand it better. And maybe I'll go over there across the street to the MMA gym and engage in some violence as a way to understand (laughs) it better. But I never expected to like it. And I always expected to have my one official cage fight and then retire instantly afterwards. But the big surprise for me was that I really liked it. I liked it. And I didn't like it because it was violent. I just liked the competition. I liked the educational aspect of it. I liked hanging out with the other guys. The focus. Uh, The social aspect became a big deal for me. And um, So I continued doing it for another two years after my fight ended.
0: And You say across the street. It's across the street from uh, your office at yeah, uh, the yeah. college so, where you teach, right? Yes.
1: Yeah. So almost four years ago now, I was working as an adjunct uh, English instructor at a small liberal arts college, and I was hanging out in my cubicle that I shared with other adjuncts. And I was sort of like bemoaning and mourning, really, the failure of my academic career, that I had striven hard in this academic race, and I had basically failed. And uh, I I was pacing around my cubicle, as I often did at that time, and I happened to look out the front window, and this new business had moved in across the street. And it was one of these cage-fighting gyms. Uh, I could see the cage through the the big picture window. I could see the guys in the cage. They were dancing, hitting, tackling. And I was ambushed by this really unexpected emotion. The emotion was envy. I envied those guys. They seemed so alive and so brave and so young over in that cage. And I felt, you know, like I was getting older and kind of rotting away in my cubicle. And so I had this sort of funny thought. and It was just a joke at first at my own expense. And it was... Hey, you know, wouldn't it be funny if I went over and joined them? You know, me, I'm almost 40, I'm not really in very good shape. I've literally never been in a fistfight in my entire life. And then my next thought was, hey, you know, well, who knows? Maybe there's a book in that. And a a book about crossing that street, a sort of nonfiction version of Fight Club where I go across the street, I'd try to learn how to fight. But along the way, I'd be asking these big questions about the role that violence plays in human life.
0: Well, you told me that you were going to be doing this the last time we talked about your previous book. We got to talking after the interview, and you mentioned that this would be your next project. And at that point, I had already interviewed uh, Matt Polly, who is a guy who also took up mixed martial arts uh, Mm -hmm. late in life, a writer who decided to do it and make the kind of narrative uh, about the training leading up to his big fight, which was, I think, in Las Vegas. So you were aware of that and you were like, oh, no, another book's come out with this theme. (laughs) But yours is different and um, it's quite different because of some of the academic interests you have or personal interests you have. I I didn't realize until I started reading the book that you have personal history that really plays into this big time. I mean it wasn't just a bored academic who thought, I'll do a stunt. Uh, I'll write a George Plimpton-esque saga of – of a professor who decides to mix it up and enter the school of hard knocks. Uh, No, because you talk about your history. Uh, You said a moment ago that you uh, had never been in a fight, but you actually had, in a way. I mean, people had had picked on you like crazy when you were young, yeah? Yeah, yeah. And so you had that history of bullying.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's always kind of an interesting question. I think it's one of the really artificial things about not interviews necessarily, but any kind of conversation you have with anyone about your book. And the question always comes up, hey, why'd you write that book? You know, why'd you do this? Why'd you do that crazy thing? Yeah. And the truth is, the answer is often and almost always really complicated. So, you know, part of it was to do a Plimpton-esque stunt. Yeah. To be honest. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm walking <laughs> out around my cubicle, I'm making $16,000 a year. Part of me is saying like, hey, you know, how can I write a book that people want to read? And they'll pay money for it. Now maybe I can make a little bit of money. So part of it was that, you know, and part of it is that, as an academic, uh, this whole subject of violence, men and violence, played into some of my deepest research interests. So my very first book was called "The Rape of Troy: Evolution, Violence and the World of Homer." So it was about Homer, but it was also about men and it was about masculinity and it was about uh, violence. And then on top of the academic. Uh, interest I had in the subject, I had a profound personal interest in the subject of violence, um, in the subject of courage. Um, as you alluded to, I had a a personal history of violence that was unheroic, uh, to, to say the least. You know, I was always a small kid. Um, I was always sort of a class runt. And I attracted a lot of attention uh, from bullies who figured out very early on that I was not one of those brave little guys who would stand up for himself. Um, and so what always interested me about that was, you know, those incidents occurred, let's say, 25 years ago, you know, when I was in high school. And I had gone on to do cool things. I had written some books. I had gotten a Ph.D. I had married a, a nice woman and had a couple of children. I was doing well in my life, but my sort of psychic economy it always weighed very heavily on me that I had flinched uh, from those fights. And I didn't not fight because of good ethical reasons. I mean, there's courage if you're a pacifist, right? If you won't fight and you're a pacifist, there's a kind of courage in that. But I wasn't uh, morally opposed to violence. I just knew I wasn't any good at it. And I knew the bullies would stomp me into the turf. Um, and so I took a lot of sort of humiliation over it. So a big part of the project was, you know, as pathetic as this may sound, and as pathetic as it sounds to me when I say it, was to redeem myself, to redeem that boy uh, I was a long time ago for all the times, um, you know, when I sort of flinched in the face of those challenges. And I wanted to go into the the, ca- the cage. You know, kind of find out if I was actually a coward, um, or if I had some uh, some bravery in me uh, that I could find and and cultivate.
0: Well, I want to say it doesn't sound pathetic because um, it's a story that is shared by a ton of um, men. I've certainly talked to many in my life for whom the sting of having been bullied never went away, yeah. and it's it's pretty common. Maybe you can give me an a, unscientific estimate. Among big-time fighters, I mean, you hear guys like the great Daniel Cormier, who currently holds the yeah. belt uh, in the UFC, in the light heavyweight division, talk about being bullied as a kid. I heard, mm-hmm. I've heard i heard great boxers talk about it. Mm-hmm. A lot of MMA guys, for sure. I mean, George uh, St. Pierre talked about it.
1: No question. I mean, I think that's one of the things that was very interesting to me to learn in, in the process of my research because you know when I first crossed that street to go into that cage, I was worried about it. I was worried about meeting the other guys. I figured they'd all be sort of muscle bound Neanderthals, and I figured you know they'd be all sort of either high school football captain types or they'd be high school bully types, and they just weren't the The thing that attracts guys to the martial arts men in particular women may have different uh motivations, but men are attracted to the martial arts. Generally, not when they know that they are strong, but when they fear that they are weak and they fear that they are in danger of being exploited uh, over their weakness. So, yeah, for the most part, the guys that I met in the MMA world were not guys who took some sort of delight in savagery, who um, were sadists, who were violent men. I never heard of anybody in my gym in the whole three years I was there. Getting in a fight outside the cage and this doesn't happen. These aren't violent guys. They're guys who are, who are feeling uh, a lot of anxiety about their ability to stand up for themselves. These are typically working class guys. They're very young. They're on average 20 years old. They live in a world where there's still social consequences, pretty extreme social consequences for backing down from a fight. And they just want to have this sort of skill set and a sort of confidence that if they are pushed around, uh, that they can stand up for themselves.
0: Do you think um, it varies a little bit in MMA with the weight division? Uh, some of the huge heavyweight dudes don't strike me as guys who who were probably bullied. Like in his day, Brock Lesnar, uh, <laughs> you know, the giant Brock Lesnar, came off as the bully in the cage. Not Oh, as... for
1: sure, yeah. yeah. You know, Brock Lesnar spent his high school days stuffing guys like me in lockers.
0: Yeah, so, <laughs> so what's the itch that they're satisfying? They're coming from the opposite side.
1: I don't know for sure. I do yeah. know, however, that, you know, the this is something you'll see even in the amateur ranks, you know, where I live, uh, is that the talent gets less and less as you go up more and more in weight class. So the heavyweights around here and in the UFC even are yeah. notoriously weak. Yeah. A lot uh, of uh the talent pool is notoriously weak compared to the lower divisions. You have the 135 guys, the 145 guys, the 155s, the 170s. That's where competition is fiercest because there's more of those guys. Uh, there was more men of that size who were drawn to the martial arts. Most guys who are Brock Lesnar size, they go and play football.
2: Yeah,
0: or basketball. They
1: don't have that sort of intrinsic motivation to get into the gym uh, to learn how to defend themselves because – They're huge. They are. No, they're big and strong and tough, and they don't need um, the technical knowledge. They don't feel that they need the technical knowledge provided uh, by a fighting gym.
0: Well, yeah, and if you want to see really technical MMA, with with some exceptions at the say light heavyweight division, uh, you have some really skilled people like the aforementioned Daniel Cormier and the great John Jones. Yeah. But if you want to see, you know, superb technical skill. I say look at the smaller guys like the smallest of the small like Demetrius Johnson. Small, yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Known exactly. as Mighty Mouse. Yeah. Before doing this though you were sort of a closet uh mixed martial arts fan uh, in a way, right? You were sort of like <laughs> guiltily watching MMA videos back in the video era.
1: <laughs> yeah, this didn't come out of nowhere for me. You know, I had these anxieties about uh self-defense my whole life basically. So when I was in graduate school, you know, very early on in graduate school, I, I, I drove by this karate gym every day and eventually I sort of screwed up my nerve to go in there and I started uh, taking karate classes. And I had a good time and everyone was was very nice there. And I felt like I was learning things. And then, you know, at about the same time, maybe about a year later, I'm at a party and they, and they put on this videotape but this thing I had never seen before. It was called Ultimate Fighting Championship. It was the very first pay-per-view of this thing that became the UFC. And uh, I was appalled by it. I was appalled by the violence of it, but I was also realizing, well, I'm not looking away. And on the other hand, the UFC ended up being this incredible repository of knowledge uh, about what actually worked in fights and what didn't, it was sort of this scientific laboratory where you'd have talented representatives represented each martial art style, and they'd square off in these truly, in the beginning, no holds barred contests. And so the whole US, the whole point of the UFC was to settle these old bar stool arguments among martial artists, like who was better, wrestlers or boxers. Karate guys or kung fu guys, like Aikido guys or judo guys? And the UFC kind of answered a lot of those questions. And one of the, one of the things that, that it showed pretty clearly was that my style of martial arts, the karate that I was taking, was more or less useless <laughs> when it came to actual fights.
0: <laughs> well, as part of a skill set, it's not bad. I mean, you've got great uh, karate-based uh, MMA fighters, but they've got a whole lot more going on than just karate
1: yeah you seem suspiciously knowledgeable about this. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because I have not talked to any interviewer who has who has kind of shown this through the questions they're asking that this is just the tip of the iceberg of their knowledge and there's a huge amount of uh knowledge underneath uh, these these questions uh yeah so it's great i'm 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 glad you 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 know so much about this
0: yeah go ahead and nerd out uh, you know yeah
1: so here's what I would say um Absolutely. And I think, you know, this is a new development, you know, a new, the, the old development, like 10 years ago, I would have said with absolute confidence that the UFC had proven definitively that basically nothing in karate works, nothing in Kung Fu works. All those fancy spinning kicks and spinning elbows and flashy techniques you see in a Bruce Lee film or a John claude Van Damme film, they just do not work. And the reason I would say that is because they just did not work. Now, over the last decade, however, gradually these techniques have worked their way into the sport to the point where they become sort of routine in the toolkit of modern cage fighters. Spinning heel hooks, spinning elbows, um, fighters who are coming out of kung fu backgrounds, fighters coming out of karate backgrounds. And I think this is uh really cool. Uh it's really diversified the sport. It's made it a lot more interesting. Um the thing to say about it though is is a lot of karate uh senseis and kung fu masters will now say, Hey, see we told you all along that we were that we had the most deadly uh combat styles. But the thing is, you know, it's like those techniques can be effective. But what the experiment actually shows is that they're effective As long as the Kung Fu stylist also learns to wrestle, um, learns takedown defense, learns how to stand up once he's taken down, uh, engages in the hard sparring that's typical of boxing gyms and MMA gyms, and it's not at all typical of uh, martial arts dojos. Um, So it shows that some of these techniques can work, but it does not really endorse the whole system, the whole sort of almost religious system that you find in a karate gym or a kung fu gym or or what have you, where there's a sort of faith that everything that they have done over the eons is the ideal way of doing things.
0: Yeah, and of course, this is uh, dramatized in your book (laughs) with a kind of personal incident, which is kind of funny and uh, maybe kind of poignant. You, after uh, training in MMA for a while, and uh, making exactly the same point that it's really in the pragmatic mix of all these different fighting techniques that you come up with a victorious, you know, pretty killer style. But yeah. you had a colleague at uh, at the college where you taught a chemistry professor. What's his name? Nobu Nobu, who had uh, spent his life or much of it training in uh, Taekwondo and Karate, and who believed that those Pure arts were were perfect and would you know suffice in any fight, even with a mixed martial artist. And you, you got in kind of a drunken argument at a faculty party and ended up going <laughs> going out on the lawn to uh, to uh, prove your point. <laughs> yeah, No, yeah. no. Uh, I know enough about MMA to know that you are absolutely right. That you know a pure karate or kung fu or taekwondo yeah. practitioner has no business fighting someone who knows takedowns in brazilian jiu-jitsu and all right. the other skills but you guys went at it and like five or six or more times you ended up taking him down and quickly uh arm barring or what did you get rear naked choke you did yeah, some kind of
1: yeah and again just with my basic like jiu-jitsu 101 level <laughs> knowledge <laughs> yeah, yeah it was it was it was actually very it was very interesting i actually had trouble writing about that whole story because I felt so ashamed of myself for it to be honest. Um, well, that
0: is part of what makes your book affecting because you do reveal, I mean, the whole very self-deprecating part about having been quote unquote a coward. I think you yeah. were being too, I think you were being too hard on yourself personally. And yeah. then, uh, you know, getting a little bit of a a thrill out of uh beating up this uh <laughs> chemistry professor. Sh- yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's just <is> so horrendous. <laughs> uh, but that's what yeah. makes books uh, kind of uh you know, us readers, I mean, we're gluttons for embarrassing stuff that other people are willing to share with us, you know?
1: Well, I guess I you know, I felt shame about it almost right away. I told him going in like Nobu, because uh, he, he knew about the UFC, but he hadn't really watched it as closely as I had. Uh, he hadn't been studying different systems of martial arts. He just had a sort of a faith-based understanding based upon what his senseis had told him that he was a practitioner, he was a black belt in the world's most deadly form of combat. And I told him going in, I'm like, no, Boo, you're not going to win. Um, you, you're, you're just not, because you don't know how to fight on the ground. I'm going to take you down. I'm going to submit you on the ground. Um, I wasn't sneak attacking him. He just didn't believe me. Mm-hmm. And so we went out on the grass at this faculty party with you know a bunch of librarians and Assistant Dean standing around watching. <laughs> you know, this a bizarre scene. Um, and we had a very friendly fight. It was not an angry thing. It was very experimental, both kind of men of scientific, uh, bents. And we're like, okay, let's see what, let's see what will actually happen. And it was funny standing there on the grass and seeing, like, you know, I felt very confident. I was in great shape, you know, um, and I just, I, I just knew I would win. Um, but I looked at him and I saw that, he knew that he was going to win, <laughs> you know. He was just as confident as I was, and I started to get a little scared. And so we did it, uh, and I told him, uh, as it was going on, after the first two or three times that I submitted him, I said, this really is not fair, not just because you don't know anything about ground fighting, but because uh, you're smaller than me. You're two weight classes smaller than, than me. And he kept saying, no, no, th- this is what martial arts is for. Martial arts is for fighting bigger guys. Mm-hmm. right about that. The whole whole point of martial arts is, you know, to teach a David how he might have de- defeated Goliath. So, you know, I felt uh, this weird mix of sort of triumph. I was glad because we'd had this long debate, you know, about the, the martial arts, uh, Nobu, and I had. And I was glad that I had won the debate. But I also felt tremendous shame because I had basically, you know, bullied uh, this smaller guy into not only admitting or kind of coming close to admitting that I was right, but also I just forced upon him this knowledge that he, you know, right at the core of his identity was this knowledge that he was a man who knew how to fight, that he was a formidable person. That he could really uh, defend himself. He had these two black belts to show it. And I stripped that knowledge violently uh, from him. Um, and it wasn't until afterwards that I kind of realized that, that what I had done was sort of momentous, um, and it sort of changed his whole sense of who he was. And so I felt, I felt, I felt more and more bad about it, you know, and he's been very cool about it. Um, he was very nice about it, very gentlemanly. Um, but I did feel like a a bit of a heel.
2: Mm.
0: Hey, Jonathan, did you take a look at that YouTube video I sent you a link to, uh, yesterday? No. Oh, okay. Well, um, this is an Onion News report from a few years ago about men and their sense of themselves as fighters. Let's hear a little bit of it. A new report by the Department of Health and Human Services has found that the average male is 4,000% less effective in fights than he imagines, casting powerful doubts on many men's claims that they could take someone out in two seconds or smash a guy's face in with their fist. We found that on average, men describing hypothetical fights overestimated their level of combat skill by a factor of 40, with 80% of males incorrectly predicting they could mess a guy up real bad with one solid punch to the jaw. During actual physical altercations, however, these men were statistically more likely to end up hurting themselves, or most commonly, trying to diffuse the tension by nervously saying, hey man, let's all just calm down, okay, before any fighting even came to pass. So we heard the the Onion reporter revealing that, uh, you know, men overestimate their abilities in (laughs) fights. Uh, 4,000%. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's a great video, but it gets at something really deep. I think at least in some men, yeah. it, that it's important to them to know that they, you know, would win in a fight. And uh, in many cases, they're deluding themselves. Right. Uh, but you, after a couple of years of martial arts training, it must have changed your perception. You now can walk around the streets knowing that, yeah, you have the tools probably to um, to triumph against the average Joe.
1: Yeah. I think that I do walk around now feeling that the probabilities are much more in my favor than they were in the past. Um, I do not walk around feeling like a badass at all. (laughs) I do not walk around thinking like, I don't know, I'm the toughest guy around, because I know I'm not. And that's the other part of it. So MMA, uh, you know, training in martial arts, does increase your confidence. It does, I think, improve your self-esteem. It did convince me personally that I am probably not a coward. I was willing to take risks. I was willing to take damage. I was willing to fight against bad odds. Um, but MMA also improves your humility. There are some hard truths you learn at an MMA gym. Um, you learn the fragility of your body. You learn what your limitations are. You learn at which point you break You break uh, physically, you break cardiovascularly, and you break spiritually, like you sort of give up. You consent um, to be beaten rather than to continue to fight.
0: What do you think when you see MMA fighters, uh, mixed martial arts fighters, some of the good ones, who seem to uh, have um, shielded themselves, armored themselves with a sense of invincibility, uh, a Trump-like sense? Yeah of, like, superiority. Let's say a Conor McGregor, uh, yeah. a big uh, shit talker. Do you think that's fake?
1: Uh, in large part, yeah. I mean, I think there's probably people who are like that, who have such incredible self-belief uh, that they walk into the cage fearless. Maybe Conor McGregor.
0: But they also Maybe. have experienced moments, no doubt, of having been bested in sparring, of having been exhausted to the point where they could not fight back. I mean, they've all sure.
1: experienced yeah. that. I think it's mainly selling fights. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of back and forth, talking, rhetoric, braggadocio that is just part of the culture of fighting sports. And it's, it reflects that, you know, fighting sports are, are many things, but at the professional level, it's prize fighting. And the whole point of it is to put meat in seats. And there is a sense, uh, and it's an accurate sense by promoters, that we will show up to fights and we will buck up for them especially if we feel like there is a real beef between the two combatants, that this isn't just some sport, this isn't just some game they're playing, this is a duel. They are going into the cage in order to settle something, to hash something out that's very real. Um and so that's that's just part of how fights are sold, that back and forth, that 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 bragging. Um Conor McGregor knows he's human. You know, he knows like you said, he 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 knows that guys can choke him out. He know he's been knocked out. He's lost fights. I heard the other day that Rhonda Rousey uh has been knocked down, almost knocked out in sparring. Um so she's you know kind of unbeatable in the cage. Uh, so far, but she knows that she's human and if she takes a punch on the chin. Uh, she'll go down just like anyone else does. So yeah, I think, I mean, one of the great things, one of the really endearing things I, I learned doing this, this project was that these guys are, are, and, and I, I was mainly dealing with men. Um, they're nice men. They're nice men. They're not dangerous psychopaths, uh, outside the cage or inside the cage, And one of the things that's kind of cool about fighters, most fighters that I've talked to, is that they have proven their their bravery, they've proven their masculinity to such a undeniable degree that almost all of them can and will admit to fear. Mm. That they they go in there and they feel afraid. Mm. You know, my, my coach, for instance, Mark Schrader, who had about 30 fights, um, First time I met him, he's like, Oh, I'm I'm terrified. Every time I go in there, every time I go in there, I'm terrified. Uh, George St. Pierre, who you mentioned earlier, confesses, you know, to the the, the degree of terror, uh, he feels. So they might feel physical terror about, you know, what could happen to their bodies. And they also feel terror about the humiliation, uh, that may befall them and the psychological damage that may befall them. Because I can, I can tell you that, you know, losing a fight, um, losing a real fight or losing a fight, even sparring, it's just not at all like losing a game of tennis, you know? It's just not at all. The level of sort of psychological and emotional carnage that comes with losing a fight is um, way more, you know? It's a whole different thing than losing at other sports.
0: Um, you did what you set out to do. And I imagine there were lots of times in the course of this project you said, fuck it, I'm quitting». But you kept up in it. You did do a fight in front of an audience. That's a scary proposition. <laughs> you were pretty calm, I think you said. You weren't super afraid when you went into the cage. But you did lose that fight. Sorry to spoil the ending of your book. <laughs> you were up against a guy who's really good at Brazilian jiu-jitsu. You took him down and went right into his guard, which is a dangerous thing to do. Yeah. And he armbarred you really quickly. Yeah. Um, but you felt shame afterwards rather than, I did it. I did it. I went in there. I fought the noble fight.
1: Yeah, yeah, I did. It, um, well, you know, just just to back up just a little bit, you know, I did feel a tremendous amount of fear throughout the whole project. Yeah, uh, that was that was really the main thing I wrestled with.
0: And the fear was of fear itself.
1: The fear was of fear itself. Like, what if I shamed myself? You know, what if I went into that cage and, or I wouldn't go in. If I, what if I just chickened out at the end? You know, what if I didn't? I didn't go in the cage. What if? I went in the cage, but just ran for it. You know, I I, I literally had these horrible <laughs> like nightmares of me running around the cage no, no. in terror, like sprinting around the outside of the cage, or like jumping over the fence and running for home. You know, I just I was worried that I would just be, get overwhelmed by terror. Uh, then I got in there, and I was I was I was afraid, but it wasn't the same kind of fear. It wasn't that sort of really intense fear. And I I, I explained it this way. You know, the fear is really useful going into the fight. It's super useful. It encourages you to train hard. It encourages you to be careful. It encourages you to second-guess it and say, you know, your brain is sort of saying to you, you know, this is really dumb. Maybe we shouldn't do this. But once you're in there, the, the fear isn't useful anymore. You're there. And, and cowering is not going to save you. But I, so, oh, I'll, yeah. I'll answer your question, though, about the uh, about the fight itself. Yeah. Why did I feel shame? Uh, I went in and executed my game plan pretty much to perfection. The game plan was always to try to take the guy down and fight on the ground because that's something that I did better than stand-up-style fighting. Uh, I didn't know anything about him, so uh, I didn't know he was a, a jiu-jitsu demigod. You know? <laughs> so when, when I got him down, I was sort of like a, a fly, you know, <laughs> flying into a spider's web, and he submitted me with ease. So I sort of won the first 46 seconds of this fight. You know, I was really in control of things. And then I catastrophically lost, you know, in that final second, the 47th second. And I felt shame because there was a moment at which uh, I shot for a takedown. I shot a second takedown and 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 brought the fight back to the ground when I should have known better, when I should have already known that his jiu was way better than mine. And I worried afterwards that I had taken the fight to the ground that second time it might have been because it was a rookie mistake it might have been because it was my game plan to go to the ground and i just just you know i was just too inexperienced to change it up but i worried that i had gone to the ground because basically i would rather lose a wrestling match than try to win a fist fight and so you know for months afterwards it was the first thing i thought about in the morning and the last thing i thought about before I went to sleep, I was sort of traumatized by it. This question of whether I had lost in a cowardly way.
0: You are tough on yourself, sir.
1: <laughs> yeah, I guess I am. I guess I am. That's certainly my personality.
0: You passed the test you set for yourself, and yet you you immediately went to uh, second guessing and uh, self-flagellation.
1: <laughs> yeah, I really need some therapy. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm over it now, to, to be honest, for the most part. Good. You know, it's been a few couple years now since that fight, and I am, uh, I, I'm not as hard on myself as I was uh, right in the aftermath. Um, I'm more forgiving of myself uh, now.
0: Um, one of the things, you know, you have to uh, manage to do when you go into the cage is not only overcome fear, but you have to muster a certain amount of aggression toward someone who is – In most cases, a stranger who's never done you any harm. Right. Uh, (laughs) How do you do that?
1: Well, I I also failed at that. That's another (laughs) thing I felt like I failed at. You know, so right after the fight, I wanted to do it again. I mean, I, like, wanted to do it again. Not, like, in a mean way. Not like I wanted to hurt the guy. I I didn't have any animosity towards him. But I was like, if I could, I'd fight him in the parking lot. You know, not in a mean way. <laughs>
0: Just to have a do in the way that
1: we fight, in a yeah. way, that it, a friendly sort of fist fight. It's a weird thing. It's hard to to describe it to civilians. It's a very friendly, cordial uh, exchange of violence. So there's two things that I that I worried about afterwards. The first was that I failed uh, to expose myself to enough physical danger by having uh, more of a stand up fist fight with this kid, and the other thing that I Regret it, and I still regret this now, is that I never really punched him either you know i I did throw a punch, but it was basically just to set up a takedown i just I just tapped him um, and I might have tapped him once on the ground too so i at the end of the project, I had never really had this sort of crucial experience that I wanted to have, and I wanted to see if I was capable of it was the experience of a really truly punching another man in the face with my full heart behind it, my full muscle behind it. Um, I still have never done that. And I'm kind of glad I've never done it. You know, I'm kind of glad i never hit anyone as hard as I possibly could. Um, but the experience also feels a little unfinished for me because I, cause I never did that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's something I imagine that you'd either come into the, the cage with an old grudge, a score to settle... Not necessarily with the other fighter, but just with with life, and yeah. you you redirect it onto the the opponent, or you just get to be a professional who knows how to throw everything into the fight without malice. You know?
1: Yeah, I think there's guys who do go in there with a bit of a chip on their shoulder, but I do think the dominant type of athlete, the amateur level and the professional level, just a person who is doing this, as you said, without malice. It's a sport. It's a it's a game that they're playing. It's an intense high stakes sport, but finally, you know, they want to hit each other really hard, not because they're hoping to damage each other's brains, but because that happens to be the way you score points in this sport.
0: On the other hand, there's a certain release and uh, apparently, you know, real thrill from letting go of, you know, sort of moral scruples and uh, any restraint and just hammering people. I mean, people talk about just how cool it feels to beat the crap out of someone else. <laughs> I mean, that sounds horrible to say that, but it does sound yeah. horrible, yeah. It yeah.
1: It, it is horrible. It's one of the things that I liked the least about talk interviewing people. You know, I'd say, you know, what does it feel like? What does it <laughs> feel like to knock somebody out? What does it feel like to win a fight? And most of them, you know, are, are, you know, fairly articulate guys. And they'd be like, you know, well, you know, I don't really feel great about this, but it feels pretty good. You know, it feels pretty good. And I'm like, how good does it feel? And they would say, well, you know, it feels like sex. feels like heroin. You know, the strongest, the strongest similes, the strongest analogies, you know, they, they could come up with uh, were sex and drugs. And, uh, and I did have a little experience with that myself. And this experience, you know, very much surprised me of, you know, a few times in sparring of kind of knocking people silly just by accident and even by luck. For instance, one time I, you know, there's there's this part, you know, if you kick a guy or punch a guy in the right side of his torso, kind of up near the ribs, uh, you hit the liver and it's a notoriously horrible place to be, to be hit. It just takes all the life out of you. And one time, you know, I happened to sneak a kick through against a pretty good fighter and just, squashed his liver. I could feel my i say in the book, you know, I could feel my, my foot sinking into him like inches deep. And he just went down, you know, he just went down. And I and I stood over him and I sort of rubbed his back as he sort of coughed and moaned into the uh into the mats. Um and I say in the book, you know, I felt bad about it, but I also felt tall, you know. Mm. I felt strong. I felt tall. I felt you know other other guys were looking on and seeing that I had basically knocked out this good fighter. And, uh, yeah, and it felt, it felt pretty good. There was an exhilaration to it, for sure. And I, I drove home that night, again, as I say in the book, with the music up loud. You know, I felt, I felt good.
0: Do you think that would have been the case if you hadn't had that history of being on the receiving end of so much abuse as a kid?
1: I think I might have accentuated it. But what I was discovering in that moment was something that most fighters will testify to. They they all say you know I don't want to hurt anybody I do not want to hurt anybody I do not want anyone to be physically you know mangled for life or even in the short term by what happens I want my opponent to walk out of the cage as healthy as he came in but you know on the other hand violence uh, well executed can be a very satisfying uh, sensation and that is part of. I I don't know. I don't know how to explain it. I don't think it's because these guys are sociopaths. I don't think it's because of some sort of sickness or pathology in the culture. I think that this is just getting down pretty close to the core of human animality. You know, there is something incredibly basic, incredibly fundamental, incredibly primal, about being locked up in a cage with another man and having to fight your way out. And it really sort of strips down uh, to the essence of human nature, the the worst stuff about human nature, and also, I think, some of the best stuff.
2: Well,
0: your book is in large part about masculinity, although I'm going to put a footnote here and and maybe try to get back to the fact that uh, women's MMA has taken off in part because of the the success of the aforementioned uh, Mm -hmm. Ronda Rousey. And uh, she seems really no different than a male fighter in her um, seriousness and her willingness to dish out punishment. So maybe we're we're overly restricting it when we talk about males. But this is about masculinity a lot and about how fragile it is, about how it seems to <laughs> be at stake a lot for men, you know? Yeah. And, and it has to be reaffirmed and proven yeah. over and over again. And, uh, one of the odd parts of the dance, uh, that you're describing of fighting is that after a fight, two guys who had moments before been trying to take each other's head off can almost be like in love with each other. You know, right. there's this yeah. sweet intimacy of okay. having been through that together. Yeah, and they hug, and that that hugging after you you see after a match is not fake in many cases. You it's know? not fake,
1: yeah, yeah. Not fake, yeah, I think in most cases it's not. Yeah, it's the weirdest thing. It really struck me very powerfully when I was watching uh, cage fighting, even in the, in the early years, uh, was this sense like these guys are just trying to and and when you say they're trying to kill each other, uh, well, I, I said take just, their head off. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, pretty much literally, you know. By rule, you are allowed and, in fact, encouraged to do as much murderous violence as possible to the other guy's body until you are told to stop. You're encouraged basically to kill the other guy until the referee tells you to stop or until the bell rings and, and, and you stop. So, there's a, you know, the guys are trying to do as much violence to each other as possible. And then, as soon as the bell rings, as soon as the fight's over, they smile. They shake hands. They hug. They often give each other a little kiss on the cheek. Um, they whisper endearments into each other's ears. And a nice fight. You know, you're you're so tough. You know, um, it's it's you know I, I write somewhere you know in one of the articles I wrote as a sort of follow up to the book that you know fighting is you know possibly the the second most intimate thing that two men can do together. <laughs> and I say you know actually I think it might be the first most intimate thing. Um and I had this experience myself, you know. I had you know the very one of the very first times, you know, I, I stepped into the cage and had sort of heavy sparring with one of the good guys at the gym. I've been fighting a lot of the weaker guys. And you know, I thought I was gonna do pretty well against him, but he just tuned me up. He lit me up pretty bad. But the bell rings and we embrace and we walk out of the ring and we, you know, patting each other on the back and we sit there outside of the cage and we talk about what just transpired. And we were instantly friends, you know, and we've and he you know he remains uh, a, a close friend uh, to this day.
0: well, we can talk about how at least in this very contained and regulated environment of sanctioned mixed martial arts fights and boxing and other combat sports uh you know the violence may have a positive side in the sense that these people love doing it they they like each other they're not bad people. But your book goes uh, much deeper into male violence in general. And, of course, it's not always so benign. In fact, it's often not. I mean, you get deep into uh, history of violence and cruelty. Sometimes yeah. um, ritualized combat, like duels, there is a tremendous amount of lore in your book about uh, history of dueling. It's pretty fascinating. I did not know, for example, that, um, that simply calling you a rascal Or a jackanapes might have been enough to uh, precipitate like a deadly pistol duel.
1: Yeah, they were literally fighting words. You said that was a way to say, hey, man, want to have a gunfight?
0: Yeah, and that, you know, people were killing each other. Gentlemen were killing each other quite a bit in the past over such silly things.
1: But let's stop there for just a second because, you know, it seems so silly. The whole institution of the duel... You know, it seems so crazy. Why did these intelligent men, you know, murder each other over these trifles? And we say to ourselves, well, thank God, you know, people don't duel anymore. Thank God we don't, we're not afflicted by this. And the duel is dead in the sense of the aristocratic formal duel. But men are still killing each other over exactly the same matters of honor, um, over the same matters of respect that motivated men like Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr uh, to have their fight. The whole psychology of male violence that leads men to think it's worth it to risk everything over some silly slight, over somebody looking at them the wrong way, of somebody saying something about their girlfriend, is still the leading cause of homicide, not just in the United States, but probably in the world. Um, people, men are most likely to kill each other over what criminologists call, and this is a quote, altercations of a relatively trivial origin. They're, they're honor disputes.
0: Absolutely. And I, I didn't mean to imply that that is a thing of the past, but more that the, the sanctioned legal version of it, uh, and the version that was encouraged in polite society, the dueling, at least that's no longer.
1: <laughs> yeah, there. yeah. But, you know, some people have suggested that's a problem. You know, so, for instance, there's criminologists and sociologists who've argued in, with, you know, straight faces that the problem of inner-city violence, for instance, or jailhouse violence, um, could be remedied to large extent by reinstituting a dueling culture. And it doesn't have to be a dueling culture that involves sabers or guns. It can be a, a, a fistic dueling culture, a culture of, of boxing. There's, there, there's a whole history of, of fist fighting duels, for instance, among working class uh, Brits, you know, in the 18th and 19th century. The problem is you have a culture of honor, like you have in uh, many inner cities, and you certainly have in prison. You have a culture of honor without a dueling system, and so you have nothing to restrain uh the violence and so you know there's serious you know people serious academics who argue that we might be able to get this stuff better under control if we reinstituted uh systems of non lethal dueling
0: are these academics saying what it sounds like that the lower classes should be uh, steered into various forms of controlled violence to work it out among themselves. That sounds pretty... <laughs> sounds, it does sound kind of awful. does sound kind of awful.
1: Yeah, it does sound kind of awful. <laughs> Especially
0: when said academics have learned, I think, uh, to get along without such things in most cases uh, because, uh, you know, I'm going to sound like a bleeding art liberal here, but people have, have learned that you can get self-esteem through methods other than besting opponents, you know, in mortal combat. Uh, And when you have other outlets, you tend to be less angry and uh, less needy, you know? Uh, No, I see what you're
1: saying. I think it's been a while since I've read these guys. (laughs) Let me try to take a crack at what I think they're saying. I think they're saying that if you have a culture of honor, um, and this is a culture of honor, men are very, very uh, touchy. They're touchy about matters, especially of respect, matters of honor. They will go to war over a Mm -hmm. death. Now, this is not uh, just American inner cities or American jails. Uh, As you said, it tends to be uh, focused in lower class communities. These are communities that are unlike these sort of upper class communities in which the power of Leviathan, the power of the state, is less. It's weaker. Um, it can't, the state doesn't do a very good job of restraining uh, these these sorts of uh, lethal violence. And so I don't know what they would say to your critique, because I agree that it makes me uncomfortable, too. I think they would say, though, that, well, whether it makes you feel weird or not, they would kill each other less uh, <laughs> if they boxed
0: more. Mm. Well, I have um, spent some time in prisons talking to inmates as part of my radio work. Yeah. And and some other activities. And you talk to guys about their history. You find out that they grew up on the streets, in many cases, where they had nothing, nothing but right. self-respect. That was the only thing they could achieve. That's uh, right. And the only thing they could feel good about, and the only way to get it, was by being tough and, and powerful. No, that's
1: right. Yeah, I, but, I, I think it's absolutely true. They're one access to
0: power. Exactly. But some of these guys were in um, educational and arts programs in prison, and they had found ways of— getting much more fulfillment through writing and painting and acting and stuff, and they no longer were violent. And they looked back on their old life and said, if only I had had some other reward system
1: yeah, uh, when I was way young. To, to yeah, to gain power and to gain control over my and life. self-respect,
0: yeah. Yeah, and respect, yeah.
1: yeah. No, I, I, I agree with you. And I won't. I won't defend uh, what I said uh, much more. <laughs> no, no, I know. I'm, I'm really. I'm really having memory problems on it. That's cool. Like, as I said, I've taken a lot of punches in the head over the last <laughs> <laughs> It's Hard for me to be coherent sometimes.
0: I'll. I'll put a disclaimer at the beginning and end of the interview. The the, yeah. the interviewee uh, <laughs> wants you to know. They
1: have severe brain damage.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but we're getting into a territory that you're. Um, I mean th- this this is a nice segue into to territory that is really your turf. You are a uh, literary studies guy with a PhD in literature, taught English, but uh you are also a Darwinian and yeah. um that is the um the wagon you sort of hitched yourself to as an academic is applying Darwinian thought to literary analysis. And right. in this book Darwin is everywhere. You talk about male violence as almost a predetermined outcome of sort of reproductive truths at the Mm -hmm. most basic level. And I'll just sum them up for you, and you can tell me whether I've got it right. But basically, and this is a a sociobiology slash evolutionary psychology fundamental, and we're talking about male-female relationships in mammalian, live-bearing organisms— Males have a much lower investment in offspring. They can go around and sow their wild oats and not spend much time or energy on it and produce a lot of uh, offspring who will perpetuate their genetic inheritance, whereas females have a huge investment because they have to bear the live young and they only have a few uh, with every litter and uh, they have to put a lot of time into it. From that, you can logically derive a whole lot of consequences, like males will have to compete for mates. Uh, They'll end up being bigger. They'll end up being more aggressive, uh, yeah. and so on. And this is a you know basically a truism in biology, uh, at least in certain parts of the field. And you, uh, in this book, you know, make it sound like we males are bound to be this way. I know you've been accused probably of being a determinist and one of those yeah. throwback <laughs> sociobiologists. Yeah. The, the question I really want to ask you, Jonathan, is at the time you were writing this, women's MMA wasn't so big. So you could focus on men's fighting. And But now with the, the rise of women's MMA, and again, it looks a lot like the male version of the sport. Uh, they're every bit as brutish and
1: nasty, if you
0: want to put it that way.
1: Yeah, I think um, there was a lot there. There was yeah. a lot there. But yeah, no, I know I am an evolutionist, and I do feel that there's a sort of evolved architecture to the way that people are. Uh, there's obvious physical differences between the sexes that have been shaped by different evolutionary pressures on men and on women. Uh, we can find the same pressures in other animals. And I believe that those pressures affected uh, the brain, too. They affected our emotions. They affected the way we think. They affect our, our, our motivations. Um, the reason I focus on men in the book, though, isn't because I had any, I don't know, sort of interest in slighting women or denying that women are competitive uh, as well, that women are active as well. The reason I focused on men was was very simple. The book is a book about violence. It is a book about, you know, in very large part, about the problem of male violence in the world. And so if you write a book about violence, you are writing a book about men. Because men are the culprits. We're the culprits. You know, we fight the wars. Um, We're the ones who get into fights within a community. We commit uh, a vast percentage of the world's homicides. Um, so, you know, that, that was why I focused on men. And I focused on, on men, as you, as you suggested, because in the early days of my project, women's fighting did not exist. You know, it just really did not exist. It was so fringe as to be almost sort of like a freak show, sideshow. It just didn't exist. And then this young woman, uh, this incredibly charismatic and talented young woman named Ronda Rousey, comes along and she sort of uh, has become uh, huge. She's the biggest star in mixed martial arts. The the thing that I noticed, though, you know, we did have some female uh, competitors at our gym. There's a different motivational structure that i found. So the guys are going, for the most part, not because they hope for fame and fortune, not because they hope to beat people up. They just have a basic masculine anxiety about the ability to defend themselves. If they get pushed around, if they get bullied, they want to be able to stand up for themselves. These are young guys, about 20 years old. The women, they're not not worried about getting into street fights. That's not what's drawing them there. They're there for the exercise. Maybe they're there for the camaraderie. They're certainly there for the test of it. Just like the guys are, but they're not drawn to it by that that worry. Like, oh man, what do I do if some girl mouths off to me and I have to put her in her place? What about because... self
0: defense against men, though?
1: And self defense against men, yeah. Uh, but it's different, though. So the men are training for duels. Men
2: uh-huh. are
1: like, what if that guy looks across me at the bar and we go outside <laughs> and I can't and I can't protect myself? The women are much more pre- preparing for something a little bit different, which is assault defense, especially sexual assault defense. What do I do if I'm attacked by another, uh, an, another guy? The guys at the gym are not worried about getting attacked by, you know, assailants who are, you know, going to rob them or, or beat them. They're mainly training for these informal duels.
0: Hmm. Um, speaking of Darwinian uh, literary theory, though, that was um, your specialty, something that you actually started focusing on, I think, in grad school. Is that right? Yes, and and I don't want to surprise you here by mentioning this article that came out about you um, earlier this year. I think in the Chronicle of Higher Education called "Survival of the Fittest in the English Department." Yeah, and uh, the subhead is Jonathan Gottschall tried to save literary studies; instead, he ruined his career.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a pretty good haymaker there from the <laughs> headline writer.
0: Well, it it told how um, you really did. Um, go out on a limb a bit uh, because, you know, Darwinian thought, scientific thought applied to literary theory was not exactly likely to get a a happy reception from people into more conventional uh, style of literary criticism, literary theory. And indeed, it didn't. You and some other folks who tried to get it established, you know, were, um, what's the word I want, you know? Massacred. Massacred. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) And it seriously screwed up your, your academic career.
1: Yeah, the, the, headline, the headline writer threw a haymaker, but it was on target. It's accurate. I, I mean, I'll, I'll correct you just a little bit, and this is sure. getting very persnickety.
0: But, no, no, please.
1: Um, I never I never did define myself as a Darwinian literary scholar. I am a Darwinian. I do see the world uh, through that lens. Like most of my research has been through that lens. But my hobby horse was about importing some of the rigor, some of the methodology, some of the theory from the sciences into the humanities. How far could we get in the humanities by applying tools and methods and approaches from the sciences? I wasn't suggesting we should have a total uh, overhaul of how the humanities is done. I just wanted to see if there was a place for these methods and could we, by using them, uh, gain a surer and more durable uh, understanding of the things we were studying. But, yeah, I didn't find many takers. Was it, a, was it a tremendous failure? I think in some ways it was. Um, you know, part of my work was a, was a critique of the way that academic literary studies is done and, and of the humanities more generally. And that just didn't endear me to the people who staff the hiring committees. You know, my, my, my work sort of suggested that everything on their Vita was kind of worthless. And I was a little too polemical in my work. I had a bit of an angry young man stage, and I wrote, you know, a sort of manifesto, and I had a good time uh, with tearing up um, and sort of mocking uh, practice in my field. And I, and I paid a price for that. On the other hand, um, you know, I, I you know, I published well. You know, there was a bunch of books that I did. Some of them were well-received. Uh, a book called The Storytelling Animal um, has sold very well and was, was was reviewed well and is now taught in many, many uh, English classes, especially sort of freshman seminar-type uh, classes. So I feel like it's a mixed bag. I feel like probably my academic career is over. Um, and if it wasn 't over, you know one of the ways that I, I I sort of framed my most recent book about fighting part of the reason for doing this book about cage fighting was to put my moribund academic career finally out of its misery, <laughs> you know to do something that was so beyond the pale you know for the academic humanities that you know I would just stop having to waffle about whether or not my academic career was over. I was going to, to put it out of its misery by writing this book. And I think I, I, think I probably succeeded in that. <laughs>
0: are, are you still an adjunct, though?
1: No, no. I, a couple of years ago, I think basically about the time that I got the contract to do the professor in the cage, I left my teaching job. I decided I could take that, that risk. I still maintain an affiliation at my college at Washington and Jefferson College. But, you know, between you and me, it's a, it's a ceremonial position. You know, it's, it's not compensated. It's just, a, it's just a title.
0: So are you getting by then on your writing?
1: Well, you know, I, I, you know, I, I realize I wake up almost every morning and think to myself, I need a million dollars. How, how can I get $10 million? <laughs> I'm like, that's so weird. Like later on in the day, I will think to myself that's so weird because I, I don't care about money at all. I don't care about money at all. I couldn't care less. I went into this profession where I knew I wasn't going to make any money. So I'm like, why, am I, why is that the first thought in my head many mornings? This crazy thought that I need $10 million. And I realized finally that it's, it's, it is just basic financial anxiety. It's a yearning for um, some sort of financial stability, yeah. you know, of not always being up against it, of not always worrying about the credit card bill, you know, of not always just you know. So, so over the short term, the last few years, yeah, I've done I've done pretty well. You know, I've made a, a basic you know middle class uh, salary. Um, but it's so incredibly you know fragile. A book doesn't do very well. Maybe you can't come up with a, a good idea for your next book. You know, it's, it's just you never know. Um, it's, it's it's not steady work.
0: Nonfiction authors, uh, if they don't go into academia, if they don't teach on the side, I get the impression that the real bucks are in speaking fees. Yeah, I think that's true. Uh, is that the
1: direction you're going? The direction I'm resisting, to be honest. Oh, really? I, mean, I think there's a very strong temptation. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's a very clear path I should have chosen. I should have chosen a brand. I should have made my brand uh, the storytelling animal guy.
2: <laughs> I would be the guy who wrote
1: books like that. And you do uh, TED talks. And I would do TED talks yeah. and I would rake in money on the speaking tour from Xerox and from uh PR firms and yep. marketing firms. Oh
0: my god, yes you would. Yeah, you and I've would. done some
1: of that. I have done some of that. And it has kept my ship afloat to be honest because the money is in it. You know, it's it's astonishing how much money these people have. Yep. Uh compared to how much money publishers have. And, uh, academics can be paid. You know, these businesses, these big corporations actually have money, a lot of it, and they throw it around. So, uh, it's very tempting to go down that road, but it feels also, uh, and I may, I may go down that road in the end. You know, I may just break down and say, well, you know, you gotta have a real job, and this will be your job. But it also feels a little bit like selling my soul to the devil, you know. I'm, I'm being very honest right now, I probably shouldn't be. <laughs> but, you know, I went and gave a talk to Coke. You know, and even as I was doing it, I'm like, "What the hell am I doing here? You know, there's no, there's no good in the, what I'm doing. I'm here talking to their marketing people, talking to their PR people about the power of storytelling. They all see themselves as storytellers. You know, their their ads are stories. And you know, what am I doing? I'm helping them, you know, sell their diabetes juice, you know, to more to more people. It's not what I what I wanted out of my life. You know."
2: You
0: are not meant to be Don Draper.
1: Yeah, I don't, I, or, or help Don Draper. You know, I wouldn't have ever been Don Draper. I would have, I would have helped them, been paid by Don Draper. What I wanted out of my life was to be a scholar. You know, I wanted to be an academic. I wanted to to, to teach. I wanted to pursue uh, big ideas. And so the hard thing about being outside of academia is you are suddenly just like being thrown into this cold bath. It's shocking, and you're suddenly in the world of capitalism. And you sell or die. And uh, so I'm struggling a bit with that right now. Like, what sorts of books I should do in the future? Should I choose books that are fascinating to me and, you know, I have a sort of artistic attraction to? Or should I choose the books that are, are going to pay the mortgage?
0: So you're not yet at work on another book?
1: I am and I'm very much at work on the book that I should not be at work on Uh-oh. if I had any sort of career sense. I've I've always wondered if I had any novels in me. And I've been playing with novels for a long time, uh, off and on between projects. And so I guess for the last eighteen months or so, that's been my main um the main thing I've been working on is a couple of novels that I wonder if I have in me. And I still don't know. That's a horrible thing about it. You know, I know that I can write these nonfiction books now. But you know i don't know i don't know if i'm going to pull this off i think at this point i know i'm going to be able to get close uh but there's a big difference between close and there you know um and really really pulling it off and really sticking the landing i realize i i, I have this tendency um for better or for worse to choose sort of a very risky and almost self-destructive path <laughs> on all of, all, all of the things that I choose to, to think about and write about, you know, from the academic subjects to cage fighting to uh, rolling the dice on these novels.
2: Well,
0: Jonathan, uh, I think you've got to stop, if you haven't already, thinking of yourself as a coward. You seem like a very um, gutsy guy to me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks. I've always been uh, intellectually uh, brave. But physically, it was was physical courage that I was Mm. wondering about. Mm. Well, thank you. I appreciate that.
0: Well, Jonathan, I really, um, you know, I look forward to uh, whatever you do next. I've enjoyed both books we've talked about quite a bit.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Robert. I've enjoyed talking to you uh, a great deal. And I can't say that of, of, of most of the interviews I have.
0: And again, Jonathan Gottschall's most recent book is The Professor in the Cage, Why Men Fight, and Why We Like to Watch. You can also find a link to my previous interview with Jonathan from 2012, talking about his book, The Storytelling Animal How Stories Make Us Human, on our website, SeventhAvenueProject.com. Well, uh, in uh, listening back to the interview just completed, I realized that I did a pretty crap job of summarizing the classic theory of sexual dimorphism, that is, sexual differences, that uh, underlies some of uh, Jonathan's thinking and many other people's thinking about uh, male aggression and violence. Uh, I skipped some important steps, and uh, let me have another go at it right now. The idea is that uh, in many species, it is a whole lot easier for males to manufacture sperm than it is for females to create eggs. Eggs require more resources. Little sperm can be produced by the millions upon millions really quickly, not so with eggs, again, in many species, including all mammals. And that um, leads to completely different reproductive strategies on the part of males and females. For males, the incentive is to place many small genetic bets by having a lot of offspring by a lot of mates. And for females who are limited in the number of offspring they can have, the incentive is to invest more time in those relatively few offspring. So in the extreme case, you get mammals where the females bear the young and uh, spend a lot of time nurturing them. And because females have so much riding on that smaller number of babies, they have to be a lot more selective when it comes to picking a mate. Whereas males can play the field and uh, can be pretty promiscuous and undiscriminating, females have to find a partner who's genetically really fit, who will help them give rise to offspring that'll survive and reproduce and spread their genetic endowment around. Ergo, Females become the gatekeeper, and males have to vie for their attention and their favor, competing in all sorts of ways through ritual combat and through um, sexual displays, you know, like the peacock's tail, or the buck's antlers, or the elephant seal's big, nasty snout. The males uh, become show offs and trash talkers, and lugs and galoots of various stripes. And uh, this idea is, I think, widely accepted in evolutionary circles. It explains a lot of what we see uh, among many species in nature. But uh, let's be really careful here when extending it to human beings. Uh, I think Jonathan would agree that description is not prescription, and that describing what might be um, a biological tendency is by no means saying such behavior is inevitable in human beings, where culture and psychology are such powerful forces. In fact, it's not just humans who can overcome such tendencies if such tendencies exist. Um, A number of years ago, I interviewed the uh, neurobiologist and baboon expert Robert Sapolsky talking about a troop of baboons he studied in Kenya in which the males defied expectations and uh, their reputation for bullying and violence uh, due to some forces that he says could be described as cultural. It's kind of an amazing story. Uh, You can find it in our archives at 7 project.com. And lastly today, uh, while we're on the subject of evolutionary theory, I have one more segment uh, from my conversation with Jonathan that I knew I wouldn't have room to include in the air version of this uh, show, but that I could attach here in the online version. I wanted to know a little bit more about his ill-fated attempt to bring evolutionary thinking and uh, scientific approach to literary theory. Here's what he had to say.
1: Here's a little bit of backstory. I'm 24 years old or something like that. I'm in graduate school. It's very early on. And I had gone to graduate school because I expected to become a scholar. And I expected that scholars studied uh, a certain uh, place of the world and tried to understand it and tried to make some sort of contribution of knowledge uh, that would be lasting. And that turned out to be a very naive idea. I get to graduate school, and it's in the throes of the deeps of postmodernism, and I learn that this is a quixotic quest, that it's impossible to understand anything, that knowledge is, is impossible. And I found this very depressing, and I thought to myself, well, why go to work if we can't ever figure anything out? And so I became animated by this basic question, is there a way to gain more reliable and durable knowledge, not just about things like, you know, molecular biology, but about literature and about art, about the subject matter of the humanities. And I started to look around. I'm like, well, are there any good models out there for gaining more durable and reliable knowledge? And very quickly, I came across uh, the example of the sciences. And so my work was about shoring up uh, a few difficulties, a few major problems that I saw in the sort of basic fabric of humanities scholarship. The first was that the theories weren't very good and that's where Darwinism came in. There was a sort of outdated theory of human nature, this sort of blank slate theory, this idea that humans are cultural animals and our nature consists simply of sponging up whatever it is our culture happens to show us, to feed us. There is no human nature. There's nothing essential about us. Um, and that is a, an idea that isn't very coherent uh, in biological terms and was uh, very much out of style in all of the sciences. It was an idea that had been rejected. So it was about applying this new model of human nature. And it was also about taking methods from the scientists. So actually saying, you know, are there things about literature, important questions, interesting questions about literature and other uh, forms of art that you can actually address in the same methods that you address them, you know, scientific subjects? So are there things about literature that you can count um, and that you can uh, submit to statistical analysis and come to something that resembles a truer understanding of reality. Um, so that was what my work was about. It was about trying to apply a more scientific approach um, to the questions I was asking. <laughs> is, this has been uh, almost ten years since I did this work, and so uh, I apologize if I am a little fuzzy on some of the details and I don't talk about it as articulately as I would like to. But I'm. It's uh, about around two thousand. 2004, 2005, I'm teaching at a small liberal arts college in uh, northern New York called St. Lawrence University, and I am teaching a course on research methods, and I basically decide to enlist my students in the research. They'll learn about the subject that we are studying by actually engaging what I hope will be scientific investigation of literary problems. Um, and so the question we wanted to ask, the whole suite of questions associated with feminist literary theory. And we were going to ask them about, uh, in relation to folktales. Um, so the idea was that, you know, at the time especially, was the idea was that Western fairy tales like the Grimm's uh, were communicating this idea that that, that women and girls should be passive and and, and pretty, they should be like Cinderella, they should just wait for their prince, and that this had nothing to do with what is natural to humans. This was something that Western patriarchs had invented and foisted upon females in our society. And it's a very interesting and very plausible theory, and, and, and there's probably some truth to it. But there's a counter-theory, too, and the theory is, well, you know, maybe uh, men are more active in these tales because uh, throughout human history, men really have been more active. And maybe there's more emphasis on on female beauty because all around the world there's more emphasis on, on female beauty. Maybe it counts more across societies. Maybe it wasn't something that Westerners made up. And if that's true, then the feminist theory, this whole feminist theory of gender... Formation uh, is called into question by our research. So, what we do is we gather up collections of folk tales from all around the world, from about 100 different societies, and we go through and we just start counting stuff. And we count really, really simple things. We count, for instance, the number of male versus female characters in the tales. We count every single reference to beauty or handsomeness uh, that we can find. We code them according to the levels of activity of the characters, whether the character was active or passive or somewhere in between. They're they're, they're graded on a a sort of scale. Um, And all kinds of other questions we asked as well. And the take-home message is that we didn't find what a sort of cultural constructivist theory would suggest that we should find. It would suggest that we would, since we have such a diverse sample, we should find incredible diversity in human gender arrangements. And we didn't find that at all. Instead, we find uh, regularity. So, for instance, the emphasis on female beauty wasn't even close to being uh, relegated to the Western collections. For every male reference to, to physical attractiveness throughout our sample, there were six references to female attractiveness. Um, When it came to main characters, this is something we notice even in modern storytelling. So modern TV, modern movies, everyone says there's no good roles for women. Well, you know, that's basically true of the folk tales, too, these traditional tales all around the world. There's something like three or four, I can't remember the number now, but three or four main male protagonists for every main female protagonist. So the research, I mean, I'm, I'm going on a bit here, and I apologize, but I don't know how to talk about this in a more abbreviated way. Um, But the research made a contribution to how we understand the folktale and gender dynamics in the folktale. But it was also intended as a test of these bigger theories about human nature and about gender formation specifically.
0: So an approach that I think would be... um probably uh, more familiar to cultural anthropology than to maybe literary theory.
1: Well, that's that's what people always said. People would say, oh, man, this isn't literary studies, man. You should go (laughs) teach anthropology. But that was the whole point. The whole point was that we were going to go into the sciences, and we were going to hijack their methods and their theories and see if we could apply them in our field. Because there's always been this idea that, no, In literary studies, what we study is fundamentally unquantifiable, and that's bogus. That's completely not true, and that's part of what we were trying to establish, proof of concept of the idea that some questions, and not just the dumb, easy questions, um, are quantifiable, you know, that you can actually uh, count some of these things, and it has a major bearing on how we understand literature generally. Because the feminist theory of, of, of gender has probably been the, I don't know, more, if not the biggest idea in literary studies over the last few decades, uh, right up there. And the work we did, in my opinion, casts serious doubts on it. Not on its motives. The motives are great. The motives are, hey, wouldn't it be nice if we had, uh, an egalitarian society? Um, but the, conclusions of it, that, that all of these things about gender were socially constructed and there was no biological basis to anyone, uh, in, in my view, uh, we cast serious doubt upon that proposition.
0: Well there you have it, a short summary of what Jonathan was up to in his days as a literary theorist. And uh, I wanted to note that though he failed to persuade uh, most of his colleagues in academia, he did win some fans among scientists. Both uh, EO Wilson and Steven Pinker have blurbed his books, and uh, EO Wilson wrote a foreword for a collection of essays that Jonathan edited along with the evolutionary biologist David Sloan Wilson. But uh, unfortunately for Jonathan having support in the scientific community, uh, does you little good when your bread-and-butter work is in English departments. Well, that does it for this edition of the 7th Avenue Project. You can always listen to our back catalog online at our website, 7thAvenueProject.com, or at iTunes. And, in fact, uh, iTunes has some older episodes that aren't even on the website. And if you do go to iTunes, uh, may I suggest that you subscribe and take a second or two to award us some stars and maybe write a very short review. It's a very quick process, but apparently, I'm told, it raises the show's visibility, increases the listenership, things that we really need to keep this ship afloat, and I would greatly appreciate it. Thanks so much, and I'll be back next week.